Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and I'm very happy to be presenting you a special podcast on populism and European foreign policy. Barely a day goes by without references to a new political party, a new political movement that is emerging, that is making suggestions about how politics should respond to the international realm, whether it's Donald Trump's ban on Muslims or Marine Le Pen's calls for a uh, 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 Frexit or the uh, discussions about Turkey joining the European Union that have dominated the British referendum debate. Foreign policy has become an intrinsic part of our national politics and as new political parties and figures emerge on the European stage, statements are being said which go way beyond the cosy consensus which has dominated foreign policy making in, in many European countries. I have four amazing um, speakers to make sense of this and to help us understand both what's happening within the EU but also how this phenomenon is transforming some of our most important allies such as the United States of America. First up is Susie Dennison who is the director of the European Power Programme at ECFR, but she's also the lead author of a study of 46 insurgent parties around the European Union. She's had a team of researchers in all the EU's member states looking at what they stand for, talking to their representatives and trying to uh, dissect their foreign policy positions. Um, and then uh, we have three other speakers who are all coming from countries where there are some of these parties either in power or pretending uh, for power in uh, elections that are ongoing. Josef Janning is the co-director of our Berlin office, a senior policy fellow at ECFR, and he can tell us about the Alternative for Deutschland and the link uh, and the Linker and other parties that seem to be doing better than they were in the past on, on the German political stage. Piotr Barras is the head of our office in Warsaw, also a senior policy fellow at ECFR, and has been living with uh, under the rule of one of these uh, political parties that uh, we've been looking at in the in the uh, research um, and uh, also watching the development of, of new ones and Jeremy Shapiro our research director is back again we had a special podcast with him thinking about what a Trump policy might look like he's written eloquently uh, about Donald Trump and um, he can now tell us uh, what Trump will be like now that he is the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party so Susie, should we go to you first? You've looked at all these parties, you've worked out how much foreign policy is part of their agenda. What have you found? Um, well, inevitably, it's quite a mixed picture. The parties that we looked at um, are, range from um, far right to, to far left. Um, some of them are um, very old parties, like the Front National in France. Some of them are much newer. Um, I think the newest one we looked at was Alpha, which is a break-off movement from the AFD in Germany, uh, which was formed um, only a year ago. 
Um, and, and clearly they come from um, all across the EU and the national perspective influences their, um, uh, their, their views too. Um, but I think um, in terms of their views on foreign p policy, it is possible to, um, to draw out um, some trends at least. Um, the first of them uh, is uh, a pretty much universal um, uh, fear um, of, um, of, about the threat of terrorism and, and linked very closely um, in the minds of most of the, these parties, um, the, um, the increased um, inflows of, um, of refugees and migrants over, over the last couple of years. Um, on the causes um, uh, of of, um, uh, of refugee arrivals, um, interestingly, the uh, refugees welcome policy of Angela Merkel um, doesn't attract the universal hatred that we were expecting to find. In fact, um, the the real bet noir for a lot of these parties is um, U.S. policy in the Middle East and um, uh, and indeed um, uh, the EU um, policy of, of of following that. Um, there's a very very strong um, uh, trend of anti-interventionism um, among the parties that we looked at, um, particularly in relation um, to the Middle East. Um, but um, uh, with the slight exception that for a lot of the parties, um, the, the Russian uh, um, intervention in Syria um, is um, attracts a, a bit more support um, as having been at least a sort of a decisive effort to engage on the foreign policy front with the refugee crisis. Um, in terms of other trends that it's um, it's possible to draw out, there's very much um, maybe this was to be expected a neighbourhood first approach um, when it comes to foreign policy to the extent to which these parties are focusing on foreign policy, they're concerned about what's happening um, around um, the EU borders um, there is um, much less sympathy for um, uh, for the the, um, the EU's old model of, um, uh, of, of expanding and and, and, and making it in neighbourhood countries uh, more like it when it comes to the south um, and particularly um, on the question of Turkish accession um, uh, a lot of nervousness around that than there is um, to the east I think there's more sympathy um, uh, with regards to supporting um, reform um, potential um, EU and NATO accession for, for Ukraine um, but um, getting a little bit um, further afield um, very few parties um, uh, even um, uh, even uh, those uh, with uh, a tradition in uh, you know, communist parties um, have very much um, understanding or very clear positions um, on uh, China and Russia um, uh, as, as, as global actors, um, but much clearer views when it um, comes down to the economic links with um, with those two parties, uh, both in terms of Russia sanctions, um, uh, uh, where there is um, uh, a fairly even split in terms of what um, these parties would like to see happen, but a lot of concern about the economic impact um, at home in Europe of, of keeping those in place. Um, uh, and and with regards to China on specific questions like market economy um, status, um, not a very developed view either. Right. So half of the parties are pro-Russian and the other half are anti-Russian. Because one of the ideas that people have is that there are these links between Russia and all of these far-right parties in particular, UKIP, um, Le Pen, etc. 
Um, it's um, it's difficult. I think um, I, I would say that ha around half of them are pro-Russia sanctions and half of them are anti-Russia sanctions. Um, but uh, uh, but if you if you go a little bit deeper, because um, I you know I, I think that your, your position on sanctions is not just about uh, your view of Russia. Um, it's also about your your, your take on uh, you know the price that economically that Europe's willing to pay. It's also about your take on you know whether trade should be used. As, as a tool in that way um, but if you go if you go sort of a little bit under um, uh, uh, the the perceptions of for example what were the causes of the Ukraine crisis I, I think they're fairly evenly split on um, the extent to which that was um, Russia at fault um, or the, the extent to which that was um, the EU being provocative in um, in Russia's neighborhood and you didn't mention TTIP and free trade. Presumably they're quite sceptical about that, most of these parties. Yes, TTIP, um, not everybody. Um, there, are, um, there are some parties um, who agreed that EU should um, include a TTIP agreement with the US, including the Finns party, uh, the National Alliance in Latvia, um, some of the governmental parties like PIS in, um, in Poland, um, Sweden Democrats also in favour of, of, of TTIP. But um, they're, they're the minority. I mean, broadly speaking, um, there's um, a lot of scepticism about uh, what TTIP is going to bring for Europe. And the anti-Americanism. I mean, there, it sounds like pretty universal anti-American interventionism. Um, but does that extend to a hatred of America? Could that change if there's President Trump? <laughs> we didn't ask the specific question about the extent to which uh, a President Trump would be welcome. Um, I have to admit, um, but um, I, th I think um, I think that uh, it, it's um, it's it's a it's a hatred of um, th what they see as the effects of U.S. foreign policy, um, uh, as opposed to um, anti-Americanism per se. Um, uh, and um, and it's also linked to this this sort of the the, the choice which is made in um, the foreign policies as, as they're formed by these parties, um, effectively between Russia and the US in terms of who you choose to cooperate with in a security sense. Thank you very much, Susie. So that was a pretty comprehensive briefing. So what would be interesting now, particularly with the the other uh, speakers, would be to kind of explore, firstly. Um, you know, whether any of these parties are, are going to end up in power in different places, but also how their policies might change uh, national politics and EU politics, even if they're not in power, because often what we see is mainstream parties, uh, you know, becoming like the fringes as a way of, uh, of trying to resist them. Josef, you come from the, the country which has had the most retro politics um, so far, still completely dominated by mainstream parties. People apparently still believe in experts in Germany, which is a, 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 a rare thing. They haven't been very popular during the British um, uh, European debate recently. Um, how much has Germany been affected or is it still the, the last country with a kind of traditional representative politics structure where the citizens are willing to to let the traditional foreign policy elites make um, make foreign policy. It seems like it is, um, and it seems that you know if you compare uh, the British debate to the German debate, that in Germany still uh, the the degree of cynicism um, in the in the the attitude of people towards the towards politics and political actors is much lower. 
But there is quite a considerable change uh, also going on uh, in the country because on the fringes now, uh, particularly on the right, you have parties that that have absolutely no respect for the classic uh, um, representative, elite-driven uh, uh, political consensus. And uh, uh, people who basically uh, have very little uh, hesitance to to uh, to use every provocation that is available to them, uh, like their liking for Putin, which in the face of uh, the chancellor driving the sanctions against Russia um, is is meant as a serious provocation. And what they are using and what, what gives them resonance is uh, they don't look at what Putin does at home. They only look at the fact that he stands up uh, to being told by others what to do. And this is, I think, this is one of the the central arguments that you will find all over the German right-wing populist discourse, and it resonates a lot with the, with the uh, findings that Susie uh, just reported. This is something that puts Germany pretty much in the same basket as many of the other countries. Uh, the the drivers, the arguments, and the, the uh, the topics uh, are essentially the same. And that, presumably, Germany unites the left and the right. I mean, it's as, as true of Die Linke as it is of the alternative of well, Deutschland. Well, Die Linke has a somewhat uh, different approach to that. Um, uh, yes, they, they are also um, uh, using this term of not wanting to be told by others what to do, but they they kind of frame it differently. They, the Die Linke, interestingly, is sort of an anti-solidarity movement, Is is is... Uh, consistently against any mutualization of debt. You know? uh, uh, but they frame it in a way and say, uh, this debt uh, uh, austerity policy is, is just uh, promoting the rich. And for the same reasons, with the same arguments, they oppose any intervention, uh, be it military or be it more sustained politically. They don't want to spend uh, government money on problems elsewhere because they believe that it's only to serve the interests of the super-rich or the, the major uh, multinational companies. That is the delinquent discourse. But in this, you know, in this anti-elite, this anti-big business, this anti-finance uh, attitude, it is very similar to what the political right uh, in Germany does. And by the way, you know, this kind of anti-global finance topic uh, has been in the discourse all over the 20th century. It's a very old argument that the, the world is controlled by global finance. Jewish global finance. Yes. So, Piotr, are those arguments familiar from, from a Polish context? Not really. I think the Polish context is somewhat different, and and the law and justice, the the, the, the party, the ruling party these days in Poland, is stands out uh, somehow in this comparison with other far-right populist, uh, right populist, uh, right-wing populist parties across Europe. It stands out for for a number of reasons because it's it's if you look closely at, at the party's ideology and foreign policy, it is clearly not anti-American, which is a huge difference to a lot of, uh, as we have heard from, from Susie, um, uh, other right-wing parties um, uh, in Europe, and it's uh, clearly not pro-Russian, uh, for obvious reasons in the in the Polish context. And it is, is, is strikingly enough, it's it's not anti-EU in a way. It is it's, it it does not put the Polish EU membership in question. But what it does, and what it uh, stands for, 
is a certain redefinition of Poland's European avocation. And this is really remarkable, I think. Um, it is probably more important in the Polish context than in the in the European context. But I think what 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 the Law and Justice Party has done over the last few months is a redefinition of of Poland's um, approach to Europe, because the EU, the European integration, has been perceived in Poland over the last 25 years in the first place as an opportunity. And law and justice sees um, you more and more as, um, in terms of a risk, perceives it as, as uh, not as a chance, but as a, as a source of, of, of problems. And of course, it's a, at, at a certain level, it's obvious that the EU is a, is a, is a bad shape. It's, it's, um, uh, it's coping with lots of problems. But but I think it's more in, in, in more to that in, in in this party's approach because this is one one thing is centrality of the concept of sovereignty and nation, uh, where uh, Kaczynski and his party believe that these values have been largely neglected in Poland over the last twenty five years and and one needs to um, rediscover them and and uh, put them at the center of of Poland's uh, Polish political thinking. And there is also a, a very specific uh, analysis of uh, the state of the Union, uh, a very Euro-pessimist one, uh, where the, the Kaczynski and, and his uh, followers believe that the EU as we know it has reached its limits and we will not see it um, um, any longer in the, in the current shape, that this, is, uh, this, this, uh, this project has failed in a way. And that Poland should rearrange with this, uh, with the failure of the of the EU EU project. And the second, probably more even more interesting dimension, which is also somewhat different than the the euro skeptic uh, skeptical um, tendencies fueling other populist parties in Europe. This is a a, mo a very specific modernization agenda which law and justice has. It's a it's a belief that. Uh, Poland needs to escape the middle income trap um, and that the European Union uh, is no longer the optimal framework for Poland's further uh, economic and social modernization. That, that the EU is also, as I said before, a risk that there are certain limits set by the, by the EU for for the new economic strategy pursued by the by the law and justice government, and that Poland should um, uh, reorient um, itself, also looking beyond the EU, looking to China, for example. And in this context, is the EU a uh, euphemism for Germany? Yeah, to some extent it is, because Poland, you know, Poland is perceived in this thinking as a sort of hinterhof, the backyard of the of, of the German economy, and this is something what uh, what uh, the the governments want uh, want to, to be a center rather than a periphery. Uh, yeah, we we want to move to the Don't center, we <laughs> want to escape from the per periphery. But of course, the and and the funny thing and the interesting thing about it is that there is a lot of truth in this analysis uh, I mean there is a lot of uh, the, the analysis itself is not wrong but the responses which uh, the law and justice government offers for that are uh, very at least very controversial and very risky so what kinds of responses are they yeah for example that we need to limit uh, the um, share of uh, foreign capital in the in the Polish economy um, 
you know, I mean, this is this is a risky. How, do you, how can you do that within within the EU? A very good question. I mean, this is this is uh, and this is why if you, if you pursue this kind of goal, you uh, have to face the question: to what extent the EU is helpful with that? And and the answer is is the EU is not helpful at all because uh, probably it would be very difficult to. To, to reduce the share of, of foreign capital in the EU framework. And of course, it doesn't lead the, the Law and Justice Party to the conclusion that we should leave the EU. It's not what the, the party, the, the, what this needs to be said. It's not what the, the party stands, uh, stands for. But still, it fuels a sort of a Euro-pessimist, Euro-skeptical discourse and, and attitude uh, also to approach to, to other EU partners. They also talk a lot about Muslims, don't they? Of course they do, yes, and and the uh, the refugee crisis is uh, is another uh, issue which um, serves as a, an argument uh, in favor of the thesis that the EU, as we know, it uh, um, you know is um, will not survive the the current uh, crisis, and that this EU is, is actually which is. Uh, uh, emerging um, on our on our eyes, it's it's not uh, the EU we wished for, basically, because this is a EU which forces us to to accept Muslims refugees in our country, and uh, and we need to to um, face up to this pressure and and withstand it. Uh, and this is of course a very very important subject. Um, uh, also being part of a broader discourse in Poland. Fueled by the and triggered by the by the by the Law and Justice Party, uh, 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 whose essence is a opposition to the Western social cultural model, and uh, perceived as uh, multiculti, um, uh, vegetarian and uh, cyclist kind of dominated uh, 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 concept yeah. and, and a political basically a political idea and not a um, something which uh, originated from a you know organic uh, process of, of social change but this yeah. is something this is something imposed by left uh, leftist or left liberal elites and and this is something which is not in line with the Polish uh, tradition, Polish traditional uh, approach to, to to or Polish traditional value system. So, Jeremy, how does that um, how does Trump fit into this? I mean, he's doubled down on his anti-Muslim rhetoric after the killings in Orlando, but he does seem to have made the policy a bit more subtle and. Uh, not just aimed at Muslims, but different parts of the world now. It's very interesting to listen to this conversation and to think about it in terms of Trump, because I think Trump is is very much in the in the sort of tradition that that uh, Susie and Piotr and and Joseph were broadly describing of how of a sort of European populist uh, party. He's representing a position which is anti globalization, which is anti trade, which is anti Muslim, which is. Um, Frankly, anti-interventionist in the Middle East. I think if he was not American, you would probably describe him as um, anti-American. I guess it's always one of the problems with being American is it's harder to find somebody to blame. And I think what that's expressing is that, uh, and I maybe I probably wouldn't have said this a year ago that there, you know, there, there, there is in the United States, uh, like in most European countries some fairly large minority segment of the population which holds these views and which is struggling 
for representation. Um, and in Europe, this representation has come, th because of the difference in the political systems, has come through these political parties. But in the United States, these people have been around for the same number of decades that they've been around in Europe. Um, they have struggled much more for representation because the, the, the parties in the United States aren't European political parties. They're actually coalitions of interests which, um, which exclude third parties um, and which have been very effectively, up until this year, controlled by elites. Um, and Trump broke through that, took over one of these coalitions of parties, and is now finally giving a voice to that 20% or whatever it is of people who have these, these types of views. And so suddenly, in, in Europe, this has been a very gradual and steady process, although continually accreting, but now suddenly we're faced with the, with the possibility that this view will actually take over the United States. So it'll be a much more drastic change uh, than we've seen in Europe. What's interesting about this, I think, is that if, if Trump wins this election, this view triumphs in the United States, and so in some sense takes over the world, and I would certainly recommend in that case that you, you know, dig a hole in your backyard and fill it with canned goods. Um, but uh, if he loses, the elite um, will uh, reassert their control over the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. They will probably solidify the rules which uh, he somehow worked around and permitted him to get it. And they'll, they'll stuff that genie back in its very frustrated box probably for another generation. Unless they say that Trump failed because he was too moderate and too limp-wristed about these issues and what you need is a really strong... Oh, well, plenty of people will say that, but my point is that a candidate won't be able to break through in the way that he did because they'll change the rules. So we've now kind of laid out the, the landscape. We can see that it's, it is genuinely widespread, this phenomenon, though not yet in, in power in, in Germany, though um, uh, those parties are doing better than they have done traditionally. What does it actually mean for European foreign policy? Does this mean that the kind of traditional Western ideas of a kind of outward-looking, free-trade, values-based um, agenda is never going to get uh, a kind of proper uh, uh, support because either uh, it will be on the defensive in enough member states or, or governing parties will be too scared of it or there won't be a, a, a kind of American partner for it or... I mean, I, I would say um, not so fast because uh, I, I think... Um, I think that there will be a reality check on um, a lot of these parties um, as as they as they come into power. Firstly, uh, th there are two reasons I say that. Firstly, um, that when you uh, when you put to um, the foreign policy spokesman for um, a lot of the parties that we've in, um, we interviewed specific uh, foreign policy challenges, like what should we do on, on the U uh, Ukraine crisis, how do you handle the Syria war, and you gave them the choice between national solutions versus European solutions. Uh, when it came down to it, the majority recognised that for foreign policy issues, um, European cooperation uh, was um, uh, was the preferable option. Um, that was less the case for sort of more internal challenges like the Eurozone crisis. And so as long as you have a mix of different types of governments across Europe, I don't think the effect will be that quick. Quick. The second reason I say that is that um, when we looked at um, uh, the way in which um, 
policies had um, developed for uh, challenger parties that did get into power. So you take, for example, uh, Syriza and the independent Greeks. Um, they were sold out. They all sold out eventually um, <laughs> with the, the sort of the hardline position um, that they started with um, on Russia. Um, and this wasn't the only example of that. So, I, you know, I, I do think that um, uh, that the, the realities of, of, of governing do do change things slightly. Um, but but certainly, um, you know, getting into government isn't the only way that these parties can influence through the media, through using sort of um, uh, democratic tools such as referenda, as we've seen UKIP do in, in, in the UK, um, uh, sort of forcing change that way. Um, there, you know, there are other ways that they can um, change and the fact. I've seen your list. You've got about what 20 or 30 different referenda that are on the stocks that these parties are advocating on different bits of foreign and domestic policies. It could be pretty crippling to, to EU It discussions. could take up a lot of uh, politician, t- politician time, yes. I wonder, when, when Jeremy was uh, speaking about Trump, whether, at least in the European case, um, foreign policy was not one of the sources that actually built uh, populist movements. Uh, you know, this, this witnessing the hubris of, of liberal internationalism or witnessing the, um, the, the faults and failures of an idea that, you know, after the, the demise of communism, uh, this was now the paradigm that would govern the world, that then was translated into a domestic agenda. You know, the critique of liberal uh, internationalism then translated in itself into a critique of the liberal hegemony in society. You know, political, political elites, media, the representative democracy as, as kind of a process that would systematically keep the people, keep the majority of the people from articulating what they really felt. And it seems to me in a way that, that now this has come full circle because now that these movements have established themselves, they are under pressure to also speak out about their foreign policy. And they kind of uh, uh, continue the same reflex that probably contributed to their initial um, uh, rise. And I think the role of the United States in this is very important, at least for many of the European right-wing populist movements. They have a very ambivalent relationship with the United States. It is not the classic, you know, uh, left European, left anti-Americanism, that is anti-power and anti-biggish, uh, but it is a new, it's sort of a, a, a very old-style nationalism. It's a sort of an emancipatory um, Presumably it's also movement. part of the anti-elitist politics, because yeah. if you want elites, the biggest elites are the EU and the US. I mean, they're kind of yeah. uh, supranational. Piotr, you wanted to come in. Yeah, because I, I think Joseph's remarks was very interesting, and in but it also shows that... Uh, the whereas we have to do with the very similar phenomenon of uh, right wing or uh, populism um, in uh, West and, and, uh, and Western and Eastern Europe, I think the sources uh, might differ, and I think the this this particular aspect of liberal interventionism is not really so important in the central Eastern European context. Because, of course, there is, a, is also a backlash against liberal interventionism in Poland, for example, or in, in Hungary or, or in other, other uh, central European countries. But I think what is really important uh, in this part of Europe is um, the change of the Europeanization paradigm. 
that we we have lived in the um, in the era for 25 years where the Europeanization was the the leading concept in in Central Europe, and this is now over, and this is what what, what is shaping really the, the the political discourse in in our country. What we haven't mentioned yet is is uh, racism. You know, part of the European right wing populism is a racist undertone. That kind of and, and that's your point, Piotr, is is going away from this kind of civic definition of citizenship and what it means to be a European to back to a, a an essentially ethnic or historical religious uh, definition. You can see it in the Polish case, you see it in the German case, you see it in a couple of other yeah. cases in the French case very clearly. And um, and but yeah. but my my point was that yeah that's what's very right was was he, he was saying but but my point was that. The, uh, because you, you, Mark, ask about the consequences for foreign policy. And I think the, the fact that we are no longer living in this Europeanization paradigm means that uh, there is less and less um, inclination or tendency in, uh, in Poland and other Central European countries to um, take this European dimension of our foreign and domestic policy choices into account. That we, we just... Uh, I think the, the 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 domination of the domestic policy agenda is absolutely clear, and that and that was in in the in the past that was not the case. That the the, the the for example the foreign policy impact on some domestic policy decisions mm, uh, was uh, taken very seriously in Poland. Now it's not the case. This is the the, the prevailing. Uh, topic or the prevailing interest is the domestic policy um, agenda, which is quite revolutionary in a way in Poland. And but the foreign policy or European policy calls are not really seen as particularly relevant. So that kind of brings us back to Jeremy for the last word. What do you? I mean, as we'll see, um, quite a lot of read across from what Josef and Piotr were saying to the US, but. Yeah, I, I guess I'm thinking about this question of, the. for me, as I see this sort of rise of populism, I think a lot about this question that, that Susie brought up about the socialization of these parties. And and it's, I think here it's worth making a distinction between some of the some of the European countries that we're looking at and the United States, and especially the smaller European countries. It's very easy for me to understand how a party like Syriza is socialized, particularly when it comes to foreign policy. They have incredibly little maneuvering room. And that's even true. That's true for most of the European countries. I think uh, the United States is different. Maybe even Germany is different. Um, uh, one of the problems with being uh, the United States is that foreign policy doesn't really affect you uh, very much like it does for, it has, the United States has very few constraints. Uh, it's, as a sort of friend of mine used to say, one of the problems with being rich is you can lose money for a long time without really noticing. Um, one of the few problems of being rich. Uh, and so the United States can have bad foreign policy for a really long time without really noticing. Um, and I think that implies that uh, an American president who took these populist views would have a lot more capacity to do damage um, to the rest of the world, first and foremost, but then eventually to the United States uh, if he was in power. I think something similar, uh, although not quite so extreme, could be said for Germany. Um, which has a lot more freedom and is setting the pace a lot in in um, foreign policy in Europe. 
But the rest of the European countries really, uh, you know, we could argue about the UK and France, but the rest of them um, have a lot less freedom in the, and the, these populist parties and even the effect these populist parties will have on the foreign policies of the mainstream parties will be, I think, uh, socialized by the system and don't, t and don't say that we can't have the types of mainstream foreign policies that we've had across Europe. Okay, so um, that is a pretty interesting uh, discussion. I'm not sure I can pull it together and find uh, a single thread that links everything up, except to say that um, uh, we are going to enter a world where many of the assumptions which have guided the way that we think about foreign policy are going to be questioned, are going to be increasingly contested, and where foreign policy is going to be one of the central driving forces behind domestic politics and one of the ways that these new parties try and mobilise support for their positions. And I think we could find that foreign policy becomes as unpredictable and as volatile as domestic policy has been in, in recent period. There will be a link um, sometime over the next couple of weeks to Susie's incredible survey, which will look at all the, po all the policies of all of the, the main parties around Europe. Um, but we can already put up some links to things that we've written about some of these parties. Uh, Piotr has just written a fantastic uh, paper on Polish foreign policy. Jeremy has written uh, eloquently about Donald Trump in various different iterations. And Josef has written a number of letters from Berlin, as have some of his other colleagues um, describing the new political scene over there. So, uh, and, and even I have uh, have written some things on these areas. So if you go to www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, you will find all of these things. And if you are interested in uh, getting Susie's report, do uh, please send me an email at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. Uh, please tell us if you've got any of your own comments on these topics. You can either put them up on the website or send them to us by email would also be great if you've enjoyed this podcast if you could uh, rate it on iTunes or SoundCloud or Mixcloud post it on your Facebook page put a post on ECFR podcast's Facebook page and um, uh, generally spread the word to everyone that you know uh, tweet about it as well we have one more thing to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment um, Jeremy what's on your bookshelf at the moment I'm reading a book a novel by um, Kazuo Ishigura called uh, Never Let Me Go, which is a sort of dystopian science fiction novel about uh, a school of um, clones who are being sort of raised and educated um, to, to make donations uh, of organs uh, for, their, uh, for their clones, um, for the people that originated them. And it's about the human relationships uh, between these people in this very strange uh, social situation. I'm sure there's an, al an analogy there with populist parties, but I haven't quite worked it out. <laughs> what about you, Piotr? I'm still coping with the uh, four volumes of Heinrich August Winkler's the, the History of the West, which is, I think, a very timely piece of literature, uh, history of uh, the Western project, which is today under stress. So um, highly recommended for anybody capable of the German language. What about you, Josef? Well, also in the German language, um, um, a new book out for a few weeks now from a former colleague of ours, Ulrike Giro, 
warum Europa eine Republik werden muss, why Europe needs to become a republic. And unlike us, who still try to inform decision makers and the policy community about our ideas for a better European policy, Ulrike has written off this EU. She says that won't work. You know, policymakers have spoiled it. The Europe of governments, governments is doomed to fail. So there needs to be a new Europe built on the idea uh, or the ideas, to say that, uh, of, of the Western uh, Republican thinking. And that has a lot of Jean-Jacques Rousseau in it, a new volonté générale. Um, I find it rather problematic uh, because Rousseau <laughs> uh, had some, some very weak spots also. Uh, that, that, that is post-national. It has no nation states anymore, but it has like 35 regions. Um, uh, interestingly, you know, a lot of the smaller European uh, nation states actually would be regions in Ulrike's uh, uh, design. So some of the nationalist problems are not really solved. So she believes that a new initiative um, has to be launched to kind of save Europe. And I think this book has the problem that, that uh, a lot of the utopian books have that basically they cannot say who should actually then do it. No? And, uh, um, okay, the utopianists, they don't have to say this because they say it's all an open process. You know, we can discuss everything. But I think it shows uh, where the thinking is um, in, in an interesting part of the educated, I'd say left liberal, um, uh, younger elite, uh, you know, they have a very serious problem with this Europe. Now, a very different one from the populists, but no less fundamental than them. Mm. What about you, Susie? So I've been dipping back in recent weeks into a book I was given when I left the EU coordination strategy team at the Treasury um, in the UK um, in 2002. Um, it's called This Blessed Plot by Hugo Young, and it's a history of uh, the UK's very special relationship with the EU. So I'm reading it partly for nostalgia's sake and also partly in despair at the state of uh, the debate um, here in the UK on, on the referendum. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. So I'm going to end with uh, Francis Fukuyama, who has written a piece in the current foreign affairs on American political decay or renewal. And I suppose that's the question we've been grappling with. Is this a sign of renewal? And uh, is it a good thing that all of these political forces that have remained unrepresented for a long time are going to be able to be uh, brought into the political system and then abandoned once they betray their supporters? <laughs> or is it uh, a sign of decay and an imminent uh, leading indicator of the collapse of the entire Western political system? Anyway, we can return to that in future podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> But with, uh, from uh, Jeremy Shapiro, Piotr Barras, Josef Janning, Susie Dennison and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katarina Botel-Azionaro and our researcher is Ulrike Franke. Mm-hmm.